Count, okay, so welcome. I'm delighted to see such a robust turnout. I always photocopy optimistically. This may be the first time in my life that I still may have not made enough, which is a good thing to good thing to deal with. We're going to start all over again. My name is Chaim Angel. I'm two things for this course. Sorry, Renee. I'm sorry if somebody wants to try to find somebody upstairs to talk to them. I don't even know how to adjust the temperature. But, but if somebody wants to deal with it, let's deal with it. It does get very chilly in here. I pray here every week. And yeah, it definitely gets chilly. Although the warmth of the Sephardic Minyan is, is what keeps me going. I'm the National Scholar for the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals, which is a think tank of sorts. We try to promote a religious ideology that's very familiar here at KJ, which has been labeled centrism of sorts with the Sephardic slant. And I'm also the rabbinic scholar at KJ. So this is a wonderful opportunity to bridge these worlds. As I mentioned in the other room, I also am a... I teach Tanakh full-time at Yeshiva University as well. So I have three different full-time jobs. And, I, and what this course is going to do is bring together all of those, those elements. What I like to do in general is to try to bridge tradition. I'm a diehard traditionalist in every sense with the best of contemporary scholarship. Try to get a sense of where the trends mix, where they match, where they don't match. Get a sense of where everything belongs. And ideally to come up with a deeper understanding of the most important collection of books ever written, namely the Bible. The Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh as we call it in Hebrew, as I mentioned in the other room, many people think of it as one book because I can hold it up in one printed edition, but in fact it's a library. There are 24 books in the Bible. And each one has its own character, style, messages, all that good stuff. And the goal of this two-year-long course, you know, we're just going to plow on through one by one to try to hit on the main themes of the last 19 of the 24 books. The first five books of the Bible are, of course, the books of the Torah. There's a beautiful midrash that I wish all yeshivot would take to heart. Many do. There's a growing thirst for Tanakh, and that's not just amply demonstrated by you. But everywhere I go, there's a growing thirst for Tanakh, because people realize that this is the heart and soul of it all. This is where it all starts. This is the beginning, the middle, and to some degree the end as well. And if you know this, then you can at least get rooted in Jewish tradition, whereas if you don't know it, then you're kind of just floating around in the air. The first Midrash, I always read my sources in English because I don't know the background of everybody in the room, but you have the Hebrew present as well if you would like to follow that way. Just as a bride is adorned with 24 ornaments, so the historians among you may say, oh, at least when this Mizrash was written, evidently that was the customary bridal outfit to have 24 different adornments. But just as a bride is adorned with 24 ornaments, and if one is missing, she cannot pass muster, so a rabbinical scholar should be conversant with the 24 books of the scriptures. And if he is not conversant with one of them, he cannot pass muster. This is a very high standard. It was a high standard then, it's a high standard now. Our goal is, again, to really be able to be conversant in what the 24 books of the Tanakh are all about. So what I did here is I made this little 24 books of the Bible page. That's page 8 in the, in the overall scheme of things. It simply breaks up the Bible the way that it's organized in most Masoretic editions of the Tanakh. The Misorah goes back to the 8th and 9th centuries CE. And the Misorah blessed these people. They sat there, there are all these variant texts and manuscripts that were floating around in the Bible, and they don't all have the same exact text. So the Masoretes got together and said, we're going to knock ourselves out to generate the most accurate possible text. That takes an awful lot of painstaking work. It's not exciting, but they were doing this for the sake of heaven. They realized we have to standardize our text because this is the word of God. 
And they were willing to put in an awful lot of time. It took a while. A lot of great scholars were involved. And so the final product is at least a closed representation that you can buy in any Bible today. It's pretty much a representation of what we call the Masoretic text. So the order, the order that we have, just to run through it, we have five books of the Torah, Breshit, Shemot, Vayikra, Bimibar, and Devarim. Then we have the eight books of the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, which are colloquially known as the early prophets. That's why I have that in quote-unquote. And then there are four other books called Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 12 prophets. In, in Aramaic, it's called Treasar. And the 12 prophets are, in fact, 12 different tiny little books that are all squished together into one unit that were initially 12 different books. And we'll talk about all of these things. Then we have a third collection called the Ketuvim, those are the holy writings, consisting of Sifrei Emet, that's just an acronym for Eov, Mishle, and Tehillim, referring to Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. And then we have the five Megillot that we read on various holidays for the most part, the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentation, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And finally, we have these end books, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Things that we should just be aware of. Very often, you know, Jews of, of many different backgrounds, just, you just need to know this. There, you know, if you open up your printed Tanakhs, you will find... But there's something like one Samuel and two Samuel, right? And there's one Kings and two Kings. There's even one Chronicles and two Chronicles. And in my Tanakh, as well as yours, if you own one, you will find that there's a book called Ezra, and there's a book called Nehemiah, right? So I'm just telling you that all of those things are pure fiction. They don't exist. There's no such thing as one Samuel and two Samuel. There's no such thing as one Kings. It's one book of Samuel it's one book of Kings. It's one book called Ezra and Nehemiah, although the sages refer to it just as Ezra. And there's one book of Chronicles. Yes? Yes, I just thought uh, as a comment, um, I got here late, you might have said it, that it says just as a bride is adorned with 24 ornaments, a bride is uh, getting ready to be married, just as you have described that the Jewish people are uh, sort of married to God. It's beautiful imagery, and, and I, I certainly like the link. Let me just go through this part of the spiel to make sure I get this part of the spiel in. The reason why there is such a thing as 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is because in the good old days, everything was written in scrolls. And scrolls can only take a certain amount of volume before it's just too unwieldy. So in order to break up the scrolls into manageable size, this happened in the Second Temple period, they broke it up. To 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, they knew it was just one book. They broke it up in a perfectly reasonable spot where King Saul is killed in battle. Very sad. That's a good spot to break up the book. And then the David story is what became 2 Samuel. But it's fiction in terms of how you read the book. You have to read the book of Samuel as one great literary unit. Same thing with Kings, same thing with Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah may have actually started out as different books. I don't know. But our tradition has always regarded it as one. And therefore, it also needs to be read as one literary unit. And we'll talk about all of these books as we march down the road. Now, what's the difference between Torah and... The reason why the acronym is Tanakh, by the way, is that it stands for Torah, that's the T. Then there's Nivim, the books of the prophets are called N. And then there's Ketuvim, which is... Right? And that makes Tanakh. And that, it's an acronym. It's an abbreviation referring to the entire Bible. What's the difference between Torah and Nach? And why is the survey only about Nach? So there are different ways of understanding the differences between Torah and Nevi'im. And this is just a good way of introducing everything that we are going to be doing. The first way to, in to introduce the distinction between the Torah and all the later books of prophecy is we have to quote the most authoritative source on the difference. And that is, well, God. 
Right? God is a very authoritative source when it comes to everything, including the nature of prophecy. In Numbers chapter 12, there's a remarkable story where Moshe's, a.k.a. Moses's own siblings, Miriam and Aaron, are somewhat perturbed about this Cushite woman. I don't know what's going on over there. Nobody knows what's going on. There are all kinds of theories floating about. That's for another time. But what's for our time is, they say, hey, we're prophets too. Why is Moses so special? There's some kind of envy going on. There's some kind of disappointment. I don't know. It's very complicated. But all I can tell you is, they're disappointed that Moses gets such special treatment given that, hey, we're prophets too. So God shows up and says, let me tell you something, Miriam and Aaron. There's a difference between Moses' prophecy and everybody else, even though we use the same word prophet. And here's the important point that God makes. There's, you, know, you can imagine, different prophets are on different levels. So you can picture prophet, better, 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 and then the top of the hill is Moses. But what God comes along and says is, actually, it's prophet, better, 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 quantum leap, Moses. Moses' prophecy is not just better than everybody else's, it's fundamentally different. How so? Well, let's quote God instead of me speculating about it. Source number two. God said, hear these my words. When a prophet of the Lord arises among you, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. All of you regular prophets, by the way, we can all dream. Prophets are the greatest people who ever lived. Regular prophets, right? They're the greatest human beings ever. But regular prophets, when God reveals himself, it's through visions, it's through dreams, meaning that there's an element of the subjective. You can't get the whole story within a dream or within a vision. Not so with my servant Moses. He is trusted throughout my household. God's imagery is, I'm the king, I have a palace, and Moses is such a trusted servant I don't lock any of the doors. He can go anywhere he wants. Not so with the other prophets. With him I speak mouth to mouth, plainly and not in riddles. And he beholds the likeness of the Lord. How then did you not shrink from speaking against my servant Moses? How dare you? You don't realize that you think you're prophets and he's a prophet. You don't understand. You get dreams. You get visions. You're unclear with your prophecy. Moses got it clear. So God himself sets out this fundamental distinction between the prophecy of Moses, which is represented by the five books of the Torah, and all later books of prophecy. And this sets up something very remarkable. In Isaiah chapter 6, we will revisit this in, I don't know, May, but let's let's just mention it for now. In Isaiah chapter 6, there's this glorious, exalted vision of this 8th century prophet known as Isaiah or Yeshayahu where he sees God sitting on his throne, surrounded by angels. And the angels say, Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzvaot Melo Kol Haaretz Kivodo. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The entire earth is filled with his glory. That's a verse that we recite daily in our prayers in what's called the Kedushah, the most sacred prayer in the liturgy. It's the heart and soul of it all, where we join the angels in praising God. Sounds beautiful. I'm blown away just thinking about it, right? I'm sure you're blown away just as much as I am, right? Well, remember, the sages, this is something I mentioned in the other room, I'll mention it again in this room. The sages did not view this as a library. The sages viewed the entire Bible as one book. Meaning, since it's one book, everything is, to use language that we all understand very well, hyperlinked. When the sages read a verse in Isaiah, they immediately hyperlink to the entire rest of the Bible. That's how they operate. A pashtan, somebody who's focused on the primary meaning of the text, well, let's learn Isaiah first. 
And then let's think about how that relates or doesn't relate to other parts of the Bible. Not so the sages. They read it all in one fell swoop. So what happens when you read the whole Bible in one fell swoop? And Isaiah says, and I saw God sitting on his throne surrounded by angels. The sages say, that can't be. Very daring thing to say about a prophet. That can't be. Why not? Because God told Moses, the supreme prophet, no person can see me and live. So this is shortly after the golden calf. And yet, here's Isaiah saying, I saw God, and evidently he lived to tell about it. That can't be. The sages are hyperlinking, and suddenly they're in a terrible bind. On the one hand, Isaiah, of course, was a prophet. And therefore, his prophecy is true. On the other hand, that can't be. I love that. So what do they do? This is why you need the sages, right? The sages come through with this remarkable statement in source number three. I saw the Lord is to be understood in accordance with what was taught. All the prophets looked through a dim glass, but Moshe or Moses looked through a clear glass. This is a very gutsy and profound thing to say, typical of the sages, as a matter of fact. What are they saying? What, what are they saying, this little two-liner? They're saying, Isaiah was wrong. He says, I saw God, and the sages are saying, no, you did not, because you could not have. Amazing. So how do we explain that he's a true prophet? The answer is, he did not see through a clear lens. He saw it through a dim lens. If you can imagine sunglasses, if you don't know you're wearing sunglasses, the world looks darker. And when you talk about it in your real experience, it looks dark. But that's not the objective truth. The objective truth is the world is brighter than you think. That's what they're saying about Isaiah. Isaiah, by looking through a dim lens, reported he got a true prophecy. But he cannot report it correctly because no prophet other than Moses can fully report it correctly. And this sets up this fabulous thing that Rabbeinu Bachia... Rabbeinu Bachia was a Spanish commentator in the 14th century. He says that what's going on here is every prophet has a mirror. And Moses had no mirror. Every prophet, when he saw God, if you can imagine the same sunglasses thing, it just keeps on working. Imagine if you take the sunglasses off. Now I can't see anything. So I will have to trust that you're able to imagine what I'm trying to describe. If you take the sunglasses off and look through them at the world, what do you see? And you don't realize that you're holding sunglasses out in front of you. What, what do you actually see? Huh? You see a darker world. And what else do you see? You see your own reflection. So in other words, some of what you see out there is real. You still see the world that you're supposed to be looking at. Part of you sees a distorted image of that because it's darker. And part of you sees your own reflection. What the sages are saying, according to Rabbeinu Bachia in the 14th century, is all prophets, in their prophecy, combine the objective experience of God with their own personalities, with their own historical backgrounds. And they, can't, they themselves can't tell that apart. That's what's important. In other words, if you're looking through that sunglasses thing and you don't realize that that's what you're doing, the prophets are reporting what they see as true. But it's only partly the truth. And that's one fundamental difference between the Torah, where it's clear revelation in our tradition, and all the later prophetic books, which are true revelation, but at the same time, there's some subjective components. And that's going to, by the way, that principle comes in real handy, because when we study books like Isaiah... But we have to remember, this is something that they've they got to emphasize more. 
Isaiah was a real person living with real people and talking to real kings and going to real marketplaces and yelling at real people over there too. When you understand what those real people were going through in the 8th century BCE in the southern kingdom of Judah, all of a sudden he just comes right to life. If you just read him as an abstracted text, it's still beautiful, don't, don't get me wrong, but you lose one of the most fundamental elements of what Isaiah or any other prophet is really all about. And the Torah sets up this dichotomy in sources 4 and 5 as well. The Lord your God will raise up for, for you a prophet. These are verses in the Torah itself. From among your own people, like myself. Who's the speaker in this verse? Moses, right? Moshe is talking. Him you shall heed. So Moses is saying there will be other prophets just like me. He's saying that he's about to die. This is at the end of his life. And he's saying there will be other prophets just like me. So on one level, prophets are like Moses. On the other hand, the Torah closes with with Moses' death. Source 5. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands upon him. And the Israelites heeded him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord singled out face to face. So the Torah is really holding on to both sides of this discussion. On the one hand, there are many other prophets, and that's what we're going to be learning in this course. And on one hand, they're following in Moses' footsteps. On the other hand, there is and was and always will be just one Moses. Moses' prophecy is singular in our tradition, and because of this clear revelation, God's attesting to that demonstrates the point. And that's why, when we understand the Bible, we need to understand a whole, there are consequences to this. It's not just, oh, the Torah is more sacred. What you have to understand is what all the prophets are trying to do. The prophets actually are trying to do basically one thing, each in his or her own way. There are male and female prophets. Each in his and her own way. The prophets are trying to get the people of Israel to be faithful to the Torah, right? Faithfulness to God, once the Torah is revealed for the people of Israel, means faithfulness to the Torah. And that's exactly what the prophets are doing, meaning just as their prophecy is secondary to Moses, their very mission is secondary to Moses, right? In other words, their whole goal isn't to innovate new stuff. Their goal might be to innovate new formulations of things, to develop principles far beyond what's in the Torah. They do lots and lots and lots of that. But they're not making new Torahs. They are fully secondary to the books of the Torah. And that's certainly how our tradition has always understood it. There's one very embarrassing book. There are several embarrassing books in the Bible. And we'll talk about all of that. The sages were very honest with with their customers. Here we are, 24 sacred books here. But our sages had principles. One principle is no later prophet ever can receive laws. Whereas all prophets can say is keep the laws of the Torah. But there are no new laws ever. And that's 94% true. And the sages knew this. The one book which actually finds a later prophet getting prophetically revealed legislation, meaning laws that are actually different from the Torah, is the book of Ezekiel written in the 6th century BCE. The sages were really uncomfortable with that because it violated their basic premise that no later prophet ever can get laws because prophets uphold the words of the Torah. So we'll have to talk about that. We'll even mention it again in just a short while. But it's important to understand that our tradition has always understood Torah to be singular. Okay, yeah. What that strategy does is it keeps the process of Torah out of reach. It only happened there once. And no one living ever actually witnessed it. So, it's 
See, if they did, if what was happening during the days of the prophets when people were witnessed by the people, they would, it would lower, and they would say, this is the same process that happened to Moses. They would say, this is a very human process, a very natural process. They're almost taking it out of the natural world. They, uh, you're sort of, didn't let people touch it. No, it hands off. It is untouchable. That, you're, you're right. In other words, really, I mean, I understand that move, why they would, you know, as terms of the strategy, but just in terms of, Right, you can interpret it as strategic, you can interpret, interpret it as realistic, but the Torah itself presents it as that's the way that it is. In other words, God revealed this eternally binding covenant with the people of Israel through Moses. He could only reveal it through Moses within this thinking, not just because he was the man who was there, you know, his timing was really good, but because his prophet was singular. Prophecy well, was singular. Isn't it a very similar kind of experience? Many, but... but oh, there are many parallels, and, and what you're saying about Eliyahu is true of many prophets, actually. But there are many parallels between just about every later prophet and Moses, which only suggests exactly what, what the Torah already sets out, which is, yes, there will be Joshua also, Moses' disciple. There are zillions of parallels, which we'll talk about as soon as next week, so I don't have to wait till May. That's great. There are many, many parallels, and that's in fact what the later books of the prophets repeatedly show, that later prophets are in the spirit of Moses, but at the same time they are diminished, meaning they cannot reach the level of objective revelation that Moses had. There's always that balance of objective and subjective. Yeah? Uh, two things. One, quickly, a slight correct qualification of a statement you made okay. There, even in Jewish Bibles, there are different yeah, changes in yeah, order. But, but for sure, okay. Is, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I'm sticking with the Jewish stuff in this course. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But what struck me interestingly enough, and I don't know if this is derived from Yuvamot or not, or from the text itself, there's a phrase called "through a glass darkly." Now, I don't know if that's a Neymar Bergman movie or a book or what, but I've heard that phrase before. Which we'll have to Google it. Right. Well, that, that uh, it could well come from it. It may not come from it. Don't know. All right. Could be. We have to, that we have to Google. Okay, now, let's go back to our groupings on page 8. Again, for those who didn't hear why in the world our sources are pages 6, 7, and 8, I'm just going to say this once, and then you'll just need to remember for the next two years. I always put my source sheets at the back of each file. So that means I have five pages of notes to talk to you about, and then the source sheets are... As a result, pages 6, 7, and 8. That's how that happened. Okay, now getting back to page 8, meaning the 24 books of the Bible page. Moving over to these two groupings of prophets, the early prophets and the later prophets, this drives me crazy. I mean, thank God I still sleep at night. But, but, but it's, it's a very great irritant to me. And, and for, I, I've complained about this for 20 years. Asking, like, that's just not right. The fact that we call the first four books of the prophets, Joshua through Kings, the early prophets, and Isaiah through the twelve prophets, we call the later or the latter prophets, is simply incorrect. The early prophets span the historical period of roughly 12th century BCE to roughly 6th century BCE, spanning from Joshua and his leadership right after Moses' death, leading the people into the land of Canaan, or Israel. And it goes through the destruction of the first temple in the 6th century BCE, and then a one minor event after that, but pretty much the destruction of the temple is the climax. Okay, so keep score here. 12th to 6th century. Now, the so-called latter prophets, most of them actually lived during the period of the Book of Kings. They're not later than the, than the first ones, right? There are three, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, who are later, but everybody else, for the most part, lives during the period of the kings. That period is roughly from the 8th century to the 5th century BCE, meaning there's a couple centuries of overlap. 
So I didn't understand how that could be, plus to make matters worse. The Talmud refers to this terminology of earlier prophets and later prophets, but they never apply it to these groups. They, but the way they use it, think if you could follow, see if you could follow this one late at night. The way that they classified earlier prophets and later prophets, it's a really sophisticated line of thought about to come in, is that the earlier prophets are the prophets who lived earlier, and the later prophets are the prophets who lived later. Somehow, that makes a lot of sense to me, right? Whereas our classification doesn't. So I would gripe about this, and I would, there's one teacher, a professor at Yeshiva University, a teacher of mine, Professor Yaakov Elman, who is one of several people I consider so breathtakingly brilliant, I just can't begin to fathom. So one day I bumped into him. I said, enough complaining about this. Let's do something about it and ask people. So I stopped Dr. Elman on the street up at, up at Yeshiva University. Dr. Elman helped me out. Where did this terminology of early prophets and later prophets come from? Rashi never uses it. Radak never uses it. It just is later. It's in, all, it's in the books on my shelf, but where did it come from? Now, usually when you ask him a question, he answers within a nanosecond, and now you know. Right? And this time he actually stood for about, I would say, 20 or 30 seconds. And then he exclaims in shock, it's nowhere in any of the medieval literature. <laughs> I was like, that was so cool. <laughs> It was, it was, and, by, and by the way, without even blinking, I'm sure that that is correct. I never even need to look in any of the medieval rabbinic literature anymore. Evidently, by the way, the person who invented it was when the printing press was invented. It was, it was good for sales. So the printer actually came up with the titles. And they've stuck. And now we use them. But again, it's still mistaken. But all the same, so there's, all I'm trying to say is that there is no difference at all in status between early prophets and later prophets, nor are the books that we currently call earlier prophets all earlier than the books that we call the later prophets. Yeah. I think that I've heard the term major prophets and minor prophets. Yes. Could that be different? No, but I'll tell you what that is. Major prophets, see the group that's called latter prophets? So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are colloquially by scholars referred to as the major prophets. And the 12 prophets are called the minor prophets. And all that means, ride with this one, is it has to do with book length. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are long books, and the 12 prophets, each one of them is pretty tiny. That's that, it has nothing to do with their greatness or goodness or, or timing. It has to do with the length of the book. Yeah. No, I was just thinking that, that in terms of the, the, the early prophet in Hebrew, it's right, shown, which can also mean first, not chronologically, but just the way it is. Okay, that 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 could be what the original intent of the publisher was, but it's it's become very confusing because the Talmud uses the exact same terminology with regard to chronology, which makes a lot more sense. There is a difference between those two groupings, though, and I just want to make sure everybody is aware of it. The books that we now call wrongly the early prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, are historical prophetic narratives. This is the narrative. It's, it's all narrative. It follows from the Torah. In fact, the first nine books of the Bible become a unit as a result. You have the five books of the Torah, starting from the creation down to Moses' death. And then the next four books just pick up the plot. right? And it takes you all the way down to the destruction of the temple. So those nine are pretty much a unit. There's, if you're gonna, you can organize the books of the Bible in a lot of different ways, but those first nine would always be the first nine. There's no other good way to do it. You can try to insert other things into it. But those nine books form a literary and narrative unit. The books that are called the latter prophets are primarily not narratives. They are actually primarily prophecies. You actually hear, for the most part, the voice of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the people who are now called the Twelve Prophets, just because there happen to be 
12 of them in that book. So it's important to be aware that the, the genre is different. But it's not that, again, all of them are earlier, all of them are later, but they certainly belong in these different, in these different categories like that. More substantially, though, is that we have, what's the difference between prophets and the Ketuvim? What's the difference between Nevi'im and Ketuvim? Because those from time immemorial have been viewed as different collections. The Talmud already denotes that we have the Torah, which everybody, okay, we got that part. But it already refers to the Nevi'im as these eight books and the Ketuvim as the other 11, the holy writings. So what, why, are, why are some in one and some in the other? So the Talmud just distinguishes, but it doesn't tell you why. The first one to take a serious stab at this was, he's the first person to take a serious stab at a lot of things, was Rambam. Maimonides in the 12th century was the first one to come out with a comprehensive thesis for why some books belong in the prophets and why some books belong in the holy writings. And he says it all has to do with level of revelation. The Torah has the supreme level of revelation, as we've already spoken about. But prophets, or the books of the prophets, God communicated visions to the prophets. They're actually still revelation. As opposed to the holy writings, Rambam refers to this as a lesser level of inspiration, where the writer remained fully conscious, and God gave him some kind of inspired spirit. So it's still different from when we write things, or even... Truly, even when somebody like Rambam writes things, they're different. But they're fun, there's, a different, there's a different layer of sanctity in there. It sounds great, and many later rabbinic writers, because after all, you always quote Rambam, and you can either agree with him or disagree with him, but Rambam is a pretty imposing figure in our tradition in every imaginable regard. He certainly was a game-changer in so many areas, and this one certainly won the day in many regards. But then a Barbanel shows up. I love a Barbanel. A Barbanel is one of my all-time heroes, as is Rambam. Barbanel, Daniel Chaka Barbanel, lived in the 15th and 16th centuries. We always identify him with Spain, even though he only spent nine years in Spain. Most of his life was in Portugal, born and grew up there, was an adult, became a fabulous scholar there, fled Portugal in 1483, and ended up getting a job with, uh, not a really horrible job, although it seemed to have worked out well for a little while, with Ferdinand and Isabella, Yamakshamam Zichram. Then came the expulsion in 1492. And then he went to Italy, where he spent the rest of his days and actually wrote most of his commentaries. Abarbanel's favorite post-biblical figure was Rambam. There's a letter that we have of Abarbanel that he wrote to a friend of his when he was getting older. I think his name was Shaul something. So, dear Shaul, you know, when I was young, I read everything I could get my hands on. And if you read his commentaries, he got his hands on a lot of stuff because he was exceptionally well-read. He was extremely wealthy, which helped. He, was, he had access to all the great libraries in the, basically in the world, or at least in that region in Europe. But all the same, he was, it's incredible how much he read. But now that I'm old, life is short, I'm sticking to the two greatest books that ever were written, and that's all I spend my time doing. It's an amazing letter. And those two books are the Bible and Rambam's Guide for the Perplexed. He thought that these were the two most magnificent books ever written in our tradition. That's what I do with my time, he writes to his friend. It's a fabulous letter. I like letters by any such individual. So Barbanel shows up and he says, you know, Rambam's theory sounds so nice, but how could it possibly be right? After all, books like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are narratives. And so are books like Ruth and Esther and Chronicles. What in the world is the difference between them? Or Daniel, who was in the Holy Writings in the Ketuvim, he was a prophet. What's he doing down there? He should be up in the middle. He should be in the prophet section. The theory really doesn't work. 
And, what's and so there's no, there's no really good answer on the book. The, the incredibly unromantic answer is that the books of the Holy Writings simply were finished later. And by then there already was a corpus called the books of the prophets. There already was the Nevi'im, so that was closed. There was no, sorry, you missed your chance. But then the Holy Writings were opened up to incorporate some of these other books. It's an incredibly unconceptual, unromantic answer, but it might be closer to true than any of the other, than any of the other answers that are out there. What's important is halakha. Halakha is always good instincts when you're trying to understand the history of, uh, and the theology of this. Let's say you have halakha addresses every question you could think of. So for example, let's say I had on this table the book of Exodus, which is part of the Torah, the book of Isaiah, which belongs to the prophets, and the book of Chronicles, which belongs to the Holy Writings. And let's say I get this uncontrollable urge, as you all have had as well, to put them into a pile. Let's say you just have to make them into a pile. So what order do you put them in? So the rule is, Exodus must be on top. Anything from the Torah must be on top of anything else. But you could choose whether you put Isaiah on top of Chronicles or Chronicles on top of Isaiah. Meaning, Halakha does not see any difference in sanctity between the prophets and the writings. And that's probably correct. There's no reason to think that there's any, that there's any serious distinction there. Okay, so now that we... Sorry. Just a quick question. How did we get the names Good question. So Nevi'im, Navi is a prophet. It's a terrible translation, by the way. That's the English word that we use for it. The reason why it's terrible is that prophet means somebody who sees forward. So it's like a, a future teller, which is a tiny percentage of a, of a Navi's portfolio. A Navi really means God's mouthpiece. So Moshe was the most important and the greatest by far. But other prophets, too. They receive visions, messages, whatever it is from God, and they need to communicate that to the people. Right? So that's what a Navi is. So these books of the Nevi'im are books of the prophets, written by the prophets, containing the words of the prophets, and so on. Holy writings is basically, I, again, don't want to sound too unromantic about it, is miscellaneous writings. It includes Psalms. Psalms is the only book, and we'll talk about this you know, next <coughs> September or whatever, October. Psalms is the only book in the entire Bible which was written by people to God. Right? Prophetic revelation is God to the people. God is communicating to people. Psalms, primarily, any prayer, is us communicating with God, right? Then there are other books in the Holy Writings, in the Ketuvim, like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, where the frame of the book is, here's the wise sage talking to other people, even talking to other people about God. But God is not a player in, there's no dialogue here between God and people or people and God. It's the sage talking to other people and giving religious guidance and wisdom. So those things belong in writings, because it's, it's simply not prophecy. But we don't understand why the book of Daniel, for example, belongs in the holy writings and not Nevi'im, because he was a Navi. He, he certainly received prophetic visions, unless you want to argue that it was just a much later book, and therefore couldn't make it into the corpus of the, of the Nevi'im. Yeah? Um, the fact that the Hatsura has to come from Nevi'im and not is that a historical accident, or is that a halakhic it was a deliberate choice, but in the Gaonic period, I think there were communities that actually read from Ketuvim also for Shabbat Mincha. They had like a, the equivalent of a Haftarah then too. So it's not a halakhic, so, so, the, so a higher level of sanctity is ascribed to the Nevi'im uh, as a result of the fact that only those can be used for the Haftarah. It's not, uh, it's not. It's hard to know. There are many theories of why we read a Haftarah at all. My favorite one, which, which seems to be the most plausible, is that the prophets are read essentially as the first sermons. 
Because the whole goal of the prophets was to uphold the Torah and to make it relevant. So that to me makes the most sense, and, and historically there's good reason to think that that might be the case. And so if that's the case, then it makes sense to choose from the prophets, just because that's what the prophets are themselves trying to do. They're exhorting the people to be faithful to the Torah. Okay. Now, another thing that we should be aware of, this is just really interesting, in the Tanakh, there are many footnotes. It's really cool. I mean, they don't have it you know, under the text the way that we might have them. But it's important to note what Tanakh is and isn't. So, for example, in the Torah itself, you have a footnote. Source number six over here. Therefore, the book of the wars of the Lord speaks of Waheb and Sufa and the Wadis, the Arnon. There's a poem going on over there in that passage. And right smack in the middle, the Torah says, you know, and if you want, here's our source material. There's a book of poetry you could look up called the book of the wars of the Lord. Perhaps it was a war chronicle with songs, poems, you name it. I don't know. We don't have it. But what's important to note is that the Torah itself is already citing, you know, for more information on this poem, you can go to your local live, public library and you can look this up yourself. And this goes on throughout the Bible, one that might be familiar to many from the book of Esther, source number seven. All of his, referring to Achashverosh, mighty and powerful acts, and a full account of the greatness to which the king advanced Mordechai, are recorded in the annals of the kings of Media and Persia. Meaning, if you want to know more about King Achashverosh, go to the library. And you can read it. Unfortunately, we don't have these books anymore, but presumably they were extant then, and that's why the books of the Bible can refer to them. That sets up something that our sages were very sensitive to. What made it to our Bible? What's, what's in here? I mean, well, we're going to talk about the individual contents of each book down the line. But what's in the Bible? The answer is not, this is a scrapbook of all writings of ancient Israelites from that period. How do I know? Because they keep citing source material. And that source material was never included in the Bible and was never intended to be biblical. The prophets selectively quote from, whether written or oral sources, as well as from their own prophecy. It's a fascinating, these little footnotes are very handy in understanding something about how the Bible came to be. I like that kind of stuff, and I'm sure we'll hear more about it as we go down. So the sages of the Talmud pick this up in source number eight. Only the prophecy, which contained a lesson for future generations, was written down. And that which did not contain such a lesson was not written. The Talmud understands that what was incorporated into what we now have as the Bible, only things that are relevant to us. If some prophet showed up in the 9th century BCE and said, Folks, tomorrow there is an 85% chance of rain. And then it rained. Even if he said, God says there's a 100% chance of rain, and it rained. I don't care, neither do you. It has no bearing on our lives. Right? That's not going to change us. That's not going to religiously stir us. It's not relevant to etern- eternity. So what the Talmud is saying is that the Bible is selective. The Bible selectively presents only those matters which were relevant not only for the times in which they were first said, but that the prophets understood these, will, these are the eternal relevant of God and of Israel, and that will always be part, of, part and parcel of our people. So when we're learning these books together, we're not learning them as, okay, let's study some ancient literature and poetry and history. We're going to learn ancient literature and poetry and history and all of these things. But the idea of inspired literature and how our Bible has always self-understood, let alone how it's been understood by tradition, is that it was selective. It was presented as these are eternally relevant lessons. And then Rashi shows up and makes a distinction once again between Torah and, and the rest of the Bible. Source number nine. Torah and Moshe is called Torah because it was given for all generations. The prophets are called only Kabbalah. That doesn't mean what today we call Kabbalah. This isn't about mysticism. This is about received tradition. 
since they received each prophecy through divine inspiration for the needs of their time and generation. So how is Rashi distinguishing here? It's a fabulous distinction between Torah and the rest of the books of the Bible. Yeah, the Torah is absolutely timeless. And it's even more, you're right. Because all the books of the Bible on some level are timeless. The difference that Rashi is setting up here is between what was the original intent of the author? When God revealed the Torah to Moshe and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai and throughout the wilderness period, who was God's primary intended audience? The answer is all Jews for all time. That's how the Torah was given from the get-go. It was an eternally binding covenant for all generations. When Isaiah went into the shuk or to a particular king and said, don't invite the Assyrians to the region, who is his primary intended audience? That king and that shuk. Right? He wasn't talking to us. He was talking to them. His primary intended audience were the original people that he was speaking to. But then what was included in the book of Isaiah that we have are the things that also speak to us. Right? It's a two-pronged process rather than a single process. When God revealed the Torah, it was immediately for everybody. So that's what we need to understand. First of all, that the Bible itself cites non-canonical books, meaning books that do not belong to the Bible. So we understand the Bible was very purposefully put together. Then we have this controversial area, which I love. The sages, once you have the Bible, okay, so God revealed this or inspired this. This is our sacred literature. This is our canon, C-A-N-O-N, which is the one with two N's, even though many people would say it's the one with one N. I never understood how that worked. Right? The canon with two N's is C-A-N-O-N. The canon with three N's is C-A-N-N-O-N. But somehow people somehow think that canon C-A-N-N-O-N has two N's, but it doesn't. It's three. I counted. You can count yourself. It's very strange how our language works sometimes. I'm sorry to digress about these, these very important matters. The canon is in reference to sacred literature. So once it's there, it's there. This is our Bible. Good. So now, God, teach us what you want. And the rest of our history has been trying to figure out what it means and to battle over what it means and all of its interpretation. And that's what we'll be focusing on throughout the thing, throughout this course. But the sages of the Talmud were still uncomfortable with several books. Let me just sneakily tantalize you with which books they were uncomfortable with and why. And then we'll just have to wait until May or... September, or whatever it's going to be. Some will come sooner. But there are several books that I didn't even put these sources in there. You'll see all these sources inside when we get there. One is the prophet Ezekiel. The only book of the prophets that that the sages describe it as, they were seriously thinking of removing it from the Bible. They didn't want people to read it. The, The common denominator is the sages felt that certain books that are in our Bible might cause more harm than good, even though they are prophetically revealed or inspired. It's amazing. The prophet Ezekiel had two strikes against him. One was, as I mentioned before, he's the only prophet who actually gets laws revealed to him, and that's just not supposed to happen according to the rabbinic way of thinking. No prophet is supposed to get laws. The fact that he does is very embarrassing to the sages, and they seriously thought of banning him. The sages actually have this fabulous passage, which we'll look at when we get to Ezekiel in June or so. You know, bless this man, this rabbi named Chizkiah ben Manoach, or whatever, Chizkiah something, ben something, that he literally burned the midnight oil. He took 300 jugs of oil up to his attic, and he stayed up all night until he solved the differences between the Torah and the book of Ezekiel. And that's why they kept the book. Well, bless him. 
because I love the book of Ezekiel. I love all of these books, but I love that one too. But we have no idea what his answers are. We, that's lost. We have we, zero. We have no clue what his resolutions were. I can't figure out for the life of me what they even could have been because the laws in the book of Ezekiel are different. And so we'll have to talk about that when we get there. But that made the rabbis very, of the Talmud very uncomfortable. Another thing that made the rabbis of the Talmud very uncomfortable about the book of Ezekiel is what's called the celestial chariot visions, the Maseha Merkava. Ezekiel describes in vivid, visual detail God surrounded by the angelic host. Incredible stuff. But a little too much revelation going on if you want regular people like us to read it. And the sages got very worried that that's revealing too much of God to the uninitiated, and that's dangerous. People might read that and come to the wrong conclusions. You know, if you, if you limit that kind of thing to an elite circle, all right, let the elite circle figure out what it means. But once it's in public, once it's in print or even in manuscript form, and we all can have access to it, that made the sages very nervous. So they thought of banning the book, but as you may have noticed if you've read a Bible or just have one, the book of Ezekiel is there, thank God. In the Holy Writings, there were several books that were up in question by the sages of the Talmud. One is the book of Proverbs, which is so nice. It's actually one of the sweetest, smoothest, simple, nice, good, wise, well, as opposed to unwise wisdom, I suppose, but wise wisdom. It's fabulous. It makes you feel good every time. But it happens that several verses within it are, are contradictory. And that made the sages nervous, because after all, if God is inspiring the work, well, God should be able to get his act straight and figure out what he really means and say it consistently. And if there are contradictions, that made them nervous. So there the solution was, well, let's just fix the contradictions. Let's show why these verses are not contradictory, so that book stayed in. A far more dangerous book, perhaps the most dangerous, can't wait till we get there, you know, mark your calendars for next, I don't know, February or so, meaning not even this coming one, I'm talking about like the following one, uh, 2017, but boy oh boy, when we get there, is Kohelet, the book of Ecclesiastes, helpful translation there, but in the meantime, Kohelet, <laughs> Kohelet really scared the sages, because, and there's no question that this is correct, Kohelet is written from such a radically different perspective from the Torah, they started to think maybe it contradicts the Torah outright. And, well, what are you supposed to do? Since the Torah is the epicenter of it all, nothing's allowed to contradict it or challenge it. It's supposed to all be upholding it. Kohelet made the sages very nervous, but thankfully they figured out a way to not be nervous about it, so thankfully it is still here also. There was even some thought about the Song of Songs. That it's, you know, it's this beautiful love poem. But they thought that if a whole book is about some kind of parable, whatever that parable is, we'll talk about that also. Uh, but... They, they, there was some discomfort over there just about the existence of a book that's all a parable, but they decided, let's keep it, good. And even the book of Esther was at least considered as dangerous because it's the very first holiday that was created outside of the Torah by Jews. What do you do with that? It's adding a law. So the sages kind of had to reckon with that. Obviously, the way that we've long come to terms with it is, okay, it's not a Torah law, it's what we would call a rabbinic holiday. So that solved the problem. But until they had that solution in play... The book of Esther actually was dangerous from that point of view. It contradicted the sense of being able to add laws. I am very grateful to the sages for deciding to keep these books in, because they are all spectacular. Right? Plus, the course would be so much shorter if these books weren't there. We'd have fewer of them. <laughs> what, matter, what, matters more, what matters more is that it's important to understand the honesty of our sages, that even though we have books that they themselves viewed as religious, as prophetically inspired, they seriously entertain the notion that, okay, it's prophetically inspired, but let's say it makes people, more, makes people less religious. 
We'd rather not have it at all. So they considered banishing these books, but thankfully decided to keep all of them. That brings up one other class of literature that was written in the Second Temple period. It's actually two categories. One is called the Apocrypha, and one is called the Pseudepigrapha. The difference between Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha is Apocrypha were books written as canon, like the books of the Maccabees, Book of Judith, Book of Ben Sirah. There are books that are written of wisdom, of narratives, some really far-out stuff. It's really interesting. And my Yitzhahara got the better of me one year. I just read through the whole thing just to see what was there. Because, you know, in yeshivas, you don't learn these things at all. I was kind of curious what was going on over there. Interesting stuff. And clearly, it's written as Bible-worthy. Meaning, if you just open it up, if if you found it, and if you saw Rashi down there, you'd think, okay, this is part of the Bible. Let's learn it. It would become part of the yeshiva curriculum. But the sages banished these books. They're not part of the Bible at all. But certain Christian groups accepted them as canonical. So those things are called the Apocrypha. If the Jews banished them, but the Christians or certain Christian groups accepted them, that's called Apocrypha. Then there's Pseudepigrapha, which nobody accepted. In other words, these were other books that were written with the hopes of getting in somewhere, but everybody rejected them. They did not make it into anybody's canonical literature. And the sages actually have this fabulous statement about this in source number 10. All Israel have a portion in the world to come. That's the part that we read in synagogues, right? But then there's the part that we don't read in synagogues, which is, and these are the people who don't have a share in the world to come. So, you know, the, bleak, you know, the first part is so nice and feel good, and that's, the, that's, that's what we only hear in synagogue. But here's the other part. But the following have no portion therein. He who maintains that resurrection is not a biblical doctrine, if you deny the resurrection, which was a very important fight that the rabbis were having in that era against a sectarian group called the Sadducees, who did not believe in, the, in, in any resurrection. The Torah was not divinely re- revealed, meaning if somebody believes that the Torah was not divinely revealed, that's already outside of the parameters of Jewish faith. And an epikorus, typically understanding as somebody who denigrates the sages. There are many different understandings of this, but for the time being, somebody who denigrates the sages. Rabbi Akiva added, one who reads uncanonical books. He didn't want anybody touching that stuff because he was afraid if Jews are reading books of the Maccabees or Ben Sira or these other books that became known as the Apocrypha, some of them might start to think that it's Bible. Once it's Bible, that's the heart and soul of our religion. So to avoid that problem, he just said you're not allowed to read them. An amazing ban, which I, I'm afraid to say I've, I've broken. Many, many, many scholars would argue, I'm not, I, didn't, I, didn't, you know, I didn't go out on a limb here, that 2,000 years ago, this was a real problem. 2,000 years ago, there was a genuine fear that people might consider them Bible. You didn't have to worry about that with me, right? Or anybody reading them today. We all know what the Bible is and what it isn't. But here's a fascinating Jerusalem Talmud paraphrase of this, and it adds a little fun bonus. The books of Ben Sira and Ben La'ana, but the reading of Homer and all subsequent books is as, is as the reading of a letter. Meaning when Rabbi Akiva banned uncanonical books, he wasn't talking about Homer. You can read all the books you want that are not part of the Bible. Just don't read the Apocrypha. That's what Rabbi Akiva was concerned with. Meaning, don't read books that pretend to be Bible that we don't consider to be Bible. You should be aware, this is a fun bonus fact. I don't know how this happened. But there are about a dozen or so places throughout the entire Talmud where one of these apocryphal books, called Ben Sira, sages actually quote it and make what are called drashot on it. They actually expound on it the way that they do with biblical verses. Which suggests that at least some sages for some while either considered Ben Sira to be sacred, or at least were thinking about it. Because you don't make drashot on the Apocrypha. You can talk about it, you can give lectures, fine, but 
But they were actually making drasha, they were treating it as Bible-worthy, but Rabbi Akiva wanted to stifle that entirely. So let's summarize, and we'll have a few minutes for questions, and we'll, we'll wrap it up for the evening. To summarize everything, Jewish tradition views the entire Bible, all 24 books, as divinely revealed and or inspired, depending on the book. This is the heart and soul of religion. Right? There's another class of the heart and soul of our religion called the oral law, which is more relevant to when you learn halakha or the Talmud, where God revealed laws or expansions of laws to Moses that were not written in the Torah, but have legal bindingness like as though they were written in the Torah. So that's another class of sacred, you know, heart and soul of our religion things. But within the world of Bible, so all 24 books are considered sacred and they're eternally relevant, and that's why we learn them. The Torah, however, is fundamentally different from the other 19 books, both in terms of its sanctity, level of revelation, and that all later biblical books revolve around the Torah, whether it's prophets trying to encourage the people of Israel to keep the Torah, whether it's prophetic narratives saying Israel's history can be interpreted in light of times when they were more faithful to the Torah and times that they were less faithful. When they're more faithful, they do better. When they're less faithful, they do worse. There's all kinds of prophetic narrative of that variety. With, once the Bible was established, these are the 24 books, the sages still got nervous about some of them. And I, I love their integrity and honesty, whereas they try to figure out how do we reckon with the power of prophecy if they don't quite match up to the sort of religion that we conceive of. That's a good challenge to have, and that's a challenge that we will be confronting as we go down the line. There also were other books that's important to note, both in terms of in the Bible, that there are footnoted books that are not part of Scripture, not part of our canon, and also there were other books that people tried to get into the Bible that did not make it. By now, there's no confusion at all. We all know what is or isn't the Bible. Our game plan for the course is, beginning next week, to start with the book of Joshua. It's going to be really exciting. I'm so excited. I'm looking forward to this for a long time. You know, I, I suggested it to Rabbi Weinstock back in, I don't know, last February. And so I've had six months to kind of sit on it saying, can't wait, can't wait. Voila, here we are. I love that kind of stuff. And the goal in terms of level of learning, by the way, I, I expect and even assume that there's a very wide range of learning in the room. The way that I try to do every class that I give, by the way, is to shoot for a very high level of scholarship, but to make everything accessible whether or not you have that background. That's the goal. Sometimes I might succeed in more areas, you know, more directions, more on one side, more on the other side, but the goal officially is to try to make sure that everybody is with the program, able to, able to follow along, whether or not you've been doing this your whole life or whether or not you have been, you know, you're just a novice trying for the first time to understand what, what actually is our Bible. That's the goal. And hopefully that will work out very well. And that's what I had to say for the evenings. But before we go, a few things. I have time for a couple of questions. I'm sure that there are some things. Yeah. You keep saying uh, the sages say, the sages say. Uh, is that a selective thing or a generalization? Uh, Thank you for asking. And then, yeah, I have to spell these things out better. I tried to do it with individual people, but typically the sages refer to in that with a capital S, refer to in our tradition as two groups of rabbis. One are called the Tanaim and one are called the Amoraim. The Tanaim are rabbis who live and function ballpark from 2nd or 1st century BCE until 2nd century CE. And that group stopped once the most important book of that group, namely the Mishnah, was written by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Once the Mishnah was written, that kind of closed the era of the Tanaim, and then came the next group of rabbis, the Amoraim, say 2nd century to 6th century CE ballpark, whose primary job was to interpret the Mishnah. Right? And, the, and, that beca- and the two of those groups together form the Talmud. Yes? Uh, number 10, Mishnah, Sanhedrin, all Israel. When and uh, where was that written? 
Mishnah, Mishnah goes back to the, to the previous question. The Mishnah was written 2nd century CE, but it contains teachings that date much earlier in many occasions. But, but the final, the written product is from the 2nd century CE. This particular quotation? The Mishnah itself was actually put into writing. Before that, it was orally transmitted and developed. Thank you. There are even two Talmuds, by the way. You can just look at the two sources, 10 and 11, just to put this one out there also. You have what's called the Babylonian Talmud, meaning the sages who lived in Babylonia, expanding on the Mishnah. They had the great schools over there. And then there was the Jerusalem Talmud, which were rabbis living in Israel. And both groups of sages were trying to decipher the Mishnah, and they came to very different ways of thinking about it. The good news is that they often had exchange programs, where some rabbis of Israel would go to Babylonia, some from Babylonia would go to Israel, which actually helped keep the playing field better, because they were able to exchange ideas, which is a very important thing in general. But that's what those two sources represent. All right. So, but, and now, before you go on a practical level, there are two white pieces of paper that I started circulating at the very beginning of the evening in that other room, the library. Does anybody have them? Does anybody have those two pieces? Yeah, these are they. Okay. If you have not yet signed, these are the two white pieces of paper. This is, this is what I was talking about. Thank you. So if anybody is not on this page, all I, if I, all I request is just your name and email address. I can contact you with further information. Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.